0: Hello and welcome to another exciting installment of Just a Podcast. My name is Just Bob. Thank you for joining me. I take you now to my living room. So I'm watching a replay of Super Bowl Seven on the NFL channel on Pluto TV. And I had a bunch of thoughts as I was watching the game, so I wanted to... Share them with you, so that's going to be our topic this time around. And uh, they were they were talking the uh, commentators, uh, Kurt Gowdy, and I. I don't know who the uh, the color commentator is, but um, which leads me to uh, my first thought. You know uh, the uh, screen. <clears throat> There's nothing on the screen it's just it's just the game you know and uh, growing up during the time that I did, you know my uh, football awareness kind of took root Oh just the phone there <laughs> My football awareness kind of took root around the time of Super Bowl 15 which was for the 1980 season. I was six years old, and I was uh, paying attention to the game because our home team was in it. Uh, It was the Eagles versus the Oakland Raiders. And, uh, of course, the Eagles lost that game, so it was like a dramatic thing uh my at the time my entire family would get together to watch the game so we're talking 20 30 people in a house <laughs> you know and uh <clears throat> the, we, we lived in Philadelphia and so the when the Eagles lost that game it was like this tremendous... Trauma. (laughs) I mean, it really was. And this is like my first experience as a football fan. Um, And it's funny because that same year, the Phillies had gone to the World Series and won. And so there was a certain arrogance going into that game on the part of Eagles fans that I knew they just felt like it was a fait accompli, you know, that they were just going to roll over the Raiders and that was that. And and the Raiders, uh, I don't remember off the top of my head what was the, the betting line on that. I, I suppose I could Google it, but I really don't feel like it right now. But at least among fans in Philadelphia, you know, and a lot of this was talking to... The kids in my neighborhood, the kids in my neighborhood, telling me what their parents were saying about the game, and yeah, they they thought it was just like, you know, it was a done deal. The game was over before it was started. You know, the Raiders didn't have a chance, and the Raiders were—I do recall—they were the first team to uh, the first wild card team, excuse me—to go to the Super Bowl, and of course the eagles had gone the traditional way they won the division and 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 whatever and and the 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 division was fairly tough at that time cuz you had uh the redskins in that division and the uh the redskins uh they had just hired uh um joe gibbs at that time so the team that would when Super Bowls in the 80s and into the 90s was uh, in the process of being assembled. Uh, in New York, um, I don't, th- well, I th- yeah, I think Bill Parcells was there, but he was not the head coach yet, I think. I'm trying to remember, was he- was Bill Parcells hired in 79 or 82? I don't know why, I keep thinking it's one of those two years I don't have any way to look that up, (laughs) because I'm talking into my phone right now, Um, so I'm going to just, I'm going to table that thought (laughs) and get back to it another time. Okay, you know what? I'm going to try. I'm going to try and see if I can look it up. All right, uh, Google. Thank you for bearing with me here, because this had it, it just gotten to the point where it was driving me crazy. All right, Bill Parcell's coaching record. Uh, head coach, 1983-1990, so I, I was wrong. I had two possibly years, and it wasn't either one of them. Okay, so yeah, the Giants were uh, not the team that they would soon become. Okay, and then uh, who else was in that division? Then oh, the Cowboys, of course. The Cowboys. This is the uh, the, the well, it's the very end of the uh, you know the the Tom Landry uh, uh, years of dominance. Um, this was uh, nineteen eighty. Would have been uh, Danny. White's first season as the starting quarterback, because uh, Roger Staubach retired in 1979, or at at the end of the 79 season, I do believe, and uh, so Danny White took over, and at first it looked like they were just going to continue their run, you know, it it looked like... uh, they weren't going to miss a step, but they they went to the playoffs. They went to the NFC Championship game. I think they 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 lost in the, in the playoffs for several seasons in a row, and that was sort of the the end of that. Um, Tom Landry, of course, uh, was. Uh, let go before the 1989 season when Jerry Jones bought the team and replaced him with Jimmy Johnson. So who else was in the NFC East at the time? Weirdly enough, the Cardinals, the uh, the St. Louis Card, that then St. Louis Cardinals, and that's that's another idea I had right there. Actually, uh, talking about uh, uh, cities whose teams have moved away, but that's that's for another. That's for another. Uh, episode of Just a Podcast. Okay, so the the Cardinals are in the NFC East. Um, They were a fairly good team at that point, but not, like, dominant. So there was competition in the the division, but it wasn't. It was definitely not the best division in, in football, which it would be later on towards the late 80s and into the 90s when you had uh, uh, the Eagles were dominant at several points Uh, the Giants won two Super Bowls in that stretch, the Redskins won three Super Bowls in that stretch and uh, later on uh, when the divisions were reorganized uh, the uh, Cardinals got the boot and those were the only four teams in it so, yeah, there was many years where the NFC East was a tough division. Um, but, like I said, in, in 1980, it wasn't the toughest division in the league. I mean, it wasn't the easiest either. But anyway, going into the Super Bowl, uh, as for the, the Raiders, uh, the Raiders were, of course, the same team that had won Super Bowl eleven. Um, There had been some changes. Uh, For example, Ken Stabler was gone. He was traded to the Houston Oilers um, before the start of that season. Uh, Dan Pastorini, uh, who was traded for Stabler, was the starting quarterback at the start of the season. Uh, I think like three games in or something like that, he broke his leg. And he was out the rest of the season. The backup was Jim Plunkett. Jim Plunkett took over, and no one had any kind of great expectations of him because he had been very much of an uh, underachiever in the NFL at that point. He was drafted in 1971 by the Patriots, and he was not uh, terribly impressive he was uh, traded to the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, he was there for two seasons. He was uh, unimpressive there as well. And it's funny, I was watching uh, um, was uh, top 10, uh, NFL top 10. They were doing the Raiders, top 10 Raiders. And uh, uh, on that list was Jim Plunkett, and while they were talking about him, they showed a clip of him with New England, and then they showed a clip of him with San Francisco, and it was very bizarre to see a quarterback wearing number 16 getting sacked around like a rag doll, which Plunkett was with the 49ers. You you so associate that number on that uniform with Joe Montana, who did not get sacked around like a rag doll. You know, Montana got sacked occasionally, but it was not a common occurrence. The 49ers had a much better offensive line by that point. So, uh, Plunkett gets cut by San Francisco. He gets signed by Oakland. And at that point, his first couple seasons in Oakland... Stabler was still there and uh, he barely got into a game because um, stabler was he was uh, very um, durable you know he he didn't have a lot of games uh, in which he didn't play due to injury kind okay of, so. The Raiders' backup quarterbacks during the time he was with the team, they they didn't they didn't get much playing time, so it wasn't really known how uh, effective they were. You know, some teams have uh, the luxury of a very dependable backup quarterback. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of, well, the Dolphins. Uh, uh, when they had uh, Jim Morrill uh, Jim Morrill in fact the the season of the game that I'm watching right now uh, the the Dolphins perfect season 72 uh, Greasy was out with injury for a lot of that season and they still didn't win a game all season with Moral starting m- many of the games um there was uh, Jim Kelly uh when he was injured uh they had Frank Reich who was the backup quarterback for the Bills and uh you know Kelly got beat up man he got beat up and so he he was out occasionally and uh the transition to uh Frank Reich was uh, pretty much seamless I mean, not not much difference in the way the team played. You know, F- Frank Reich was... He was the definition of a dependable backup quarterback for a while. Um, the, uh... Well, the Giants, they won a Super Bowl with their backup quarterback. Uh, Jeff Hostetler came in when uh, Phil Simms was out with injury. Um... The Eagles won a went to Super Bowl and won a Super Bowl with Nick Foles, who was uh, in for Carson Wentz, who was out with injury and <laughs> turned out that he would never be the same player afterwards. Uh, <laughs> you know, there was there was speculation uh, after that season that the Eagles were going to. Let go of Wentz and keep Nick Foles as a starter. And in retrospect, it certainly seems like they—that's what they should have done. Because, uh, like I said, Wentz was never the same player after that. You know, he he lasted a couple more years in Philadelphia, and uh, he was released. Was he released or was he traded? I don't I don't know. What's it matter? He's gone. He went to, uh, the Colts and, uh, talking about Frank Reich earlier, uh, Frank Reich was now the head coach of the Colts, so there was some thought that with Reich having been the, uh, offensive coordinator for the Eagles when Wentz was there, uh, you know, reuniting them might be a good thing for him. It turned out not to be the case. He's playing with the Washington Commanders now and, uh, We'll see, you know, we'll see if, uh, if he's able to, uh, have a resurgence there. Um, I'm, I'm not holding my breath. I mean, it, it was pretty well known how, uh, oh, how flimsy he was in, uh, not flimsy, but he was not. He wasn't really durable. Like, what's the opposite of durable? <laughs> I, I'm drawing a blank on that. But you know what I mean. He missed a lot of games due to injury, and um, and that's never, never a good sign. You know, um, the the best quarterbacks over the Course of the history of the league Were the toughest ones You know uh, The ones who uh, Didn't want to exit a game The ones who uh, You know You basically had to uh, You had to handcuff them in the locker room To keep them out of the game Because they wanted to play More than anything And who could do that and still be effective And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, one of those things, you know, I think in the cases of some players, uh, there is, uh, an element of not fear necessarily, but, uh, hesitation, reticence, um, once, uh, especially when those who went out as the result of a hit, um, because not every player goes out as the result of a hit, uh, I'm reminded of, uh, Bo Jackson, who was just running when he injured his hip. And, uh, so that, that sort of thing does happen. Uh, but, you know, you get what they call gun shy. And, uh, so that introduces another element to the way that you play the game. And, um, it's, uh, in, almost impossible to recover from that. So, uh, you know, you, you just uh, you just don't know. And so for a team with a really dependable, really reliable backup quarterback, that's a very important thing to have. Um, and there have been a, a number of teams. See, when, when, after the Eagles won the Super Bowl, all I heard about, especially from fans of other NFC East teams, was you know uh, you guys won a Super Bowl with your backup quarterback, and how uncommon that was. But it was actually more common. <laughs> it was more common than they realized. You know the uh, well, as I was saying, the. Uh, the 1980 Raiders won the Super Bowl with their backup quarterback uh, when uh, Jim Plunkett came in for Dan Pastorini. He was the backup quarterback. You don't hear about that. I mentioned uh, Jeff Hostetler in for Phil Simms. The that, that Giants team uh, in 90 won the Super Bowl with a backup quarterback. Didn't hear much about that. You know, I mean, uh, I'm sure there are other examples. Uh, the 2000 Ravens won the Super Bowl with their backup quarterback. Uh, Tony Banks was a starter at beginning of the season. He gets benched. Uh, Trent Dilfer comes in as a starter and takes him the rest of the way. And that wasn't even an injury thing. <laughs> you know, pa- Tony Banks was stinking up the place, so Brian Billick benched him. That's just what it was. And... Uh, you have teams like, uh, uh, well, this team did not win the Super Bowl, but uh, the uh, <clears throat> was it 87-49ers, uh, Joe Montana misses several games due to injury, Steve Young comes in, they continue to, to win. Um, 80, it wasn't 87, it was... Nah, I don't know. It was I don't know. 92? 92? I don't know. But it was it was around that time. And uh of course uh Steve Young takes over, Joe Montana gets traded to Kansas City and they win the Super Bowl in 93. Or was it 94? Excuse me, 94. And uh it's funny because um I watched that Super Bowl game. It was the 49ers versus San Diego Chargers. (laughs) You know, the team then known as the San Diego Chargers. And uh, I was tripping on 10 hits of acid when I watched that game on TV. The girl I was then dating showed up in my house. I, I was having a... A small Super Bowl party, just a few people. And uh, she uh, comes in and pulls me aside and says, uh, I just got two ten strips of acid. She gives me one. I said, are we taking them all at once? And she said, yeah, yeah. So I did. So Steve Young is on the cover of TV Guide that week. And the TV guide is is sitting on the coffee table right in front of me. And I look down. And Steve Young's red jersey starts to pulsate. <laughs> it was like the most vibrant color red. You know, it was like this fire engine red. And um, the the color just sucked me in. And... I was just sitting there staring at it. I mean, it was it was kind of fantastic, to the point where I missed most of the first quarter of the game because I was so busy staring at this red jersey on the cover of the TV Guide. <laughs> and uh, my recollection of that game... In general, was that it was not that competitive, and this was the this was the the years in which the NFC pretty much went in and steamrolled over the AFC. You know, several years in a row, um, and uh, the uh, Denver Broncos probably are the. The most frequent victim of that, they they lost three Super Bowls in that stretch, but just about every other AFC team. Oh well, there was the Bills, of course. Bills won. The Bills lost uh, uh, four consecutive Super Bowls during that period of time, um, and it, it also is uh, kind of a, appropriate, I think, that. Uh, The Broncos were the first AFC team to win. You know, they're the ones that broke that streak. But anyway, uh, yeah, so you had the the Bills and the the Broncos um, who were, you know, they were the most dominant teams in the AFC at that time. You know, they would play other AFC teams and just roll over them. And then they would get to the Super Bowl and just fall down dead. You know, and happened every year. But, you know, the other AFC teams that made it during that period of time were no better. (laughs) I'm thinking of uh, the Patriots, who got demolished by the 85 Bears. And to be fair, I think almost any team that played the 85 Bears uh, would have... You know, would have been just as bad. I think the only exception was Miami. Miami was the only team to beat the '85 Bears, and that was in the early Dan Marino years. I do think there is a very good chance that if the '85 Dolphins had made it to the Super Bowl, they might have won it, and uh, because they they had been to the Super Bowl um, the year before, and they. Uh, had lost to the 49ers. And that was the second Super Bowl for the 49ers with Joe Montana. Um, and you know the 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 Dolphins looked good good going into that game. Um, and they 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 got beat. I think if the Dolphins had made it back the next year Uh, Yeah, they they would have had a chance against the 85 Bears, and very few other teams would have. Um, Judging by the way that they just whooped ass on the Patriots, the the Patriots really, I mean, they could have, those teams could have played 100 times, and and I think New England would have lost 99 of them. You know? And it wasn't really necessarily that they were a bad team, but uh, they were just overmatched. That's all it was. And their, their starting quarterback, uh, Tony Eason, he was part of the famous 83 draft class with all those quarterbacks. It's where Marino was drafted and uh, Kelly was drafted and uh, John Elway was famously drafted by the Colts and refused to play for them and basically forced the Colts to trade him and uh, they traded him to Denver for Chris Hinton who was an offensive guard. And uh, he had been the Den- the, the Denver Broncos' uh, first-round choice in 83. So... Uh, Elway went to Denver, and Elway was, you know, I mean, he's a Hall of Famer for a reason. You know, he was basically one of the best there was in the league at that time, and, and so was Dan Marino. Uh, Kelly was drafted by Buffalo, but uh, did not sign with them. He went to the USFL uh, and played three seasons for uh, Houston. And then after the USFL folded, he reported to Buffalo, whom he had made many, many, many disparaging remarks around in the aftermath of the '83 draft. Talked about how uh, you know we didn't want to go to that city, um, compared it unfavorably to Houston, um, disparaged the team, just just trashed. Everything about it, and then went to play there <laughs> because the bill still held his NFL rights, and uh, of course he's beloved there now, and uh, and he came to to fall in love with the city as well. So that was a happy ending there, I suppose. Uh, but uh, the '83 Broncos played the Colts in Baltimore and uh, Elway received a less-than-warm reception there. They booed him uh, mercilessly, and I believe the Broncos lost that game. I may be wrong about that. That was the last season for the Colts in Baltimore because they moved before the 84 season. And my family moved to the Baltimore area from Philadelphia in 1983. So I remember when the Colts left, and I remember how really genuinely traumatic it was for Colts fans uh, losing the team like that. And for somebody who was kind of a neutral party in the whole thing, because I was still an Eagles fan. I I would always be an Eagles fan um it was interesting to see the effect that it had on on the city it was such a demoralizing thing uh, and 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 you know this was a, a a relatively passionate sports city the orioles had just won the world series in 1983 beating the Philadelphia Phillies, which I was pretty upset about, although the the 83 Phillies were not the same team as the 80 Phillies. You know, the 80 Phillies were dominant, the 83 Phillies were overmatched. Now, the 93 Phillies, when they went back to the World Series, were even more overmatched. They had no business even playing against the Toronto Blue Jays, who were just uh, absolutely dominant, um, I think uh, the Blue Jays would have beaten 95% of the teams in the National League that year. That, that's just how good they were. But anyway, the the Colts left. They went to Indianapolis, and, you know, the funny thing about that is for years, uh, I, I knew... I knew next to nothing about the city of Indianapolis. Next to nothing. And so when the Colts moved there, so why in the hell would they want to go to Indianapolis? What is in Indianapolis? And in 2021, I visited Indianapolis for the first time. And let me tell you something. I think most of us have their sort of list of, like, dream destinations, you know, like places that you would move to if the opportunity arose, um, even if you are happy where you are, I am I love it here in the tri-state, and, um, you know, if I stayed here for the rest of my life, I'd be fine with that, but, uh. I, I, you know, there are places I'd love to go, and, um, Indianapolis is probably second or third on that list, I mean, I fell in love with that city, like, instantaneously, I just loved it there, and, uh, I, I would move there tomorrow, <laughs> you know, uh, the other places I would move to, uh, at the top of that list is Philadelphia, of course, uh, and then uh, Los Angeles, uh, mentioned Indianapolis, uh, Boston, New York, Austin. I've never even visited Austin, but I don't have to. <laughs> I would go there I would go there tomorrow. Um, you know, there's a list of places and I think you know, like I said, most of us will have that uh, you know, places you'd go to if the opportunity, arose, and, uh, yeah, I was just, I was impressed with just about everything about Indianapolis. You know, I, I was impressed by the fact that it's, it's a major city, but it, it has a, a a suburban feel in a lot of it, and, uh, I saw an awful lot of grass on the streets, um, You know, a lot of my, what I know about living in cities is based on my experience in Philadelphia. And uh, grass is like nowhere to be found, at least around the part of the city where I lived in, in Fishtown and uh, uh, eastern uh, Kensington. You know, I, I, there was, like, one tree in the neighborhood. There not literally one tree. There was a few of them, but not many. And grass on the ground was, you know, it was like you, you had to go to a baseball field to, <laughs> to see grass on the ground because there just wasn't any anywhere. So, that uh, you know, that was what I was used to in, in Indianapolis. There are a lot of uh, areas that are really, really nice like that, you know, and uh, it just kind of reminded me of how much more comfortable I am in large cities. You know, I mean, I, I was born in a large city and lived in a large city for many years. And, uh... It's just what I know. You know, and, uh... But it was very interesting living in, in Baltimore at the time that the Colts left. And... Uh, how, uh, as I said, it was it was very demoralizing, and it, something in the spirit of the city just died, you know, and it came back to life when the CFL expanded to Baltimore. Um, this was I don't know, ninety two or ninety three. They were there for a couple of years. And were successful. They won a championship in 95. And uh, then in 96, it was all ripped away because the Cleveland Browns left Cleveland. And uh, they were reborn in Baltimore as the Ravens. And the 95 Cleveland Browns were a good team. I was reminded of this yesterday. I was watching the... They were having um, a football life marathon on NFL Network. And I was watching... And there was a football life episode on the 95 Browns. And they were... I mean, it, it was almost a, 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 a case of sabotage, what happened to that team, because Art Modell announced during the season that the team was moving. So they were lame ducks for that season, and the season just kind of collapsed. You know, they were they were a good, solid team. And they had Bill Belichick as the coach. And this was not, of course, the Belichick of uh, his years of winning championships in New England. But it, it wasn't far off from that. Was not far off from that. I mean, keep in mind, this is 1995. And Belichick got to uh, the Patriots. And I. Was it 1999? Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. It was 1999. The team drafted Tom Brady in 2000. They won their first Super Bowl in 2001. So, it wasn't far off. And so... The... I mean, the the Browns were just... (laughs) You know, I mean, having Modell announced the move in the middle of the season like that, it was practically, like I said, it was just—it amounted to just about amounted to sabotage. I mean, the effect on the team was just disastrous, just totally disastrous. And uh, of course, the team was good. Uh, they went to Baltimore and they had a couple of lean years under Ted Um, Marchabroda. In 99, 99 or 98, 98, they hired um, Brian Billick who had been the offensive coordinator for the Minnesota Vikings. They brought him in as head coach. And uh, the Ravens were Super Bowl champions in two seasons. as they won the Super Bowl in 2000 over the New York Giants, who had... Uh, Jim Fossil as their head coach by that time and Jim Fossil was let go as the Giants coach not too long was it it after that game or maybe the following season I don't recall but ended up as an assistant coach with the Ravens because he was uh, friendly with Brian Billick but anyway, you know, the Ravens became winners and the Browns um, were reactivated. <laughs> uh, th- what the NFL decided to do was instead of the Ravens being considered the same team as the Browns, Um, the Ravens were uh, considered an expansion team, so the, uh, the original Browns and the new Browns that began in 99 are considered by the league to be the same team that they were just inactive for the 96, 97, and 98 seasons, which to me seems like a convoluted And I also found it very interesting that the city of Cleveland was able to strip the Browns' name and uh, basically their whole identity from Modell's franchise when they moved. You know, there are, to my knowledge, the only team that has managed to do that. Just about every other team that has moved has kept their identity. Um, notable cases. Uh, teams with uh, regional identities. <laughs> it's like the, the New Orleans Jazz moved to Utah. And what does Salt Lake City have to do with jazz? Salt Lake City is probably the most... The, it's probably the least jazzy place in the whole country. And yet their team is called the Jazz. And uh, the Minneapolis Lakers, uh, in playing in Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes, moved to Los Angeles. They are still called the Lakers even though Los Angeles is the land of zero lakes. <laughs> uh, I think Echo Park is like the only lake in all of L.A. And that always made me laugh. I, I, I always found that quite funny. <laughs> I still do, obviously. So, but, uh, you know, I thought the same thing about the Cardinals. The Cardinals moved to Arizona. Uh, are there any cardinals in Arizona only to learn that the the cardinals were not named after the bird they were named after the color of course the color was named after the bird but uh anyway yeah the cardinals uh you know i i never i never have understood that but for the most part, when a, when a team moves, they, they take their identity and everything with them. Um, other exceptions, like uh, the St. Louis Browns moved to Baltimore and became the Orioles. And th- that's an unusual case of a team adopting a local identity. Other examples, uh, the uh, uh, Seattle Pilots, uh, 69 expansion team, uh, only played one season in that city uh, and moved to Milwaukee and renamed themselves the Brewers. That is Bud Selig's team. (laughs) Not that I'm suggesting you hate them for that reason, but it is. And uh, of course, uh, brewing is, is, is a, a big regional thing in Milwaukee. The team even plays in uh, Miller Park, a uh, park uh, with uh, uh, the naming rights uh, owned by a beer company. And uh, there have been a few of those over the years. Uh, An an interesting case is Bush Stadium in St. Louis, uh, where the the Cardinals play uh, the baseball team, I mean, of course. Um, When uh, the Bush family bought the team, they wanted to rename the stadium Budweiser Stadium. Budweiser was then the Bush Brewing Company's flagship product. Uh, I would say that role has been supplanted by Bud Light con- just going by the number of you know, Bud commercials and whatnot versus the amount of Bud Light ads and things that I see. and 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 humorously, I guess, I would say, uh I I basically came of age with Budweiser being my drink of choice you know it was, it's my go-to order in a bar because just about every bar has Budweiser, you know I found that, uh, certain friends of mine over the years have, have had preferences for certain beers that were not, like, universally available. Um, you know, uh, Rolling Rock springs to mind. Um, Yingling is another one. Depending on where you are, you know, some of the, and both of those beers are local here in PA. Uh, but depending on where you are, there's certain places that don't carry them. And... So you know, and and, and I, I I maybe twice in my whole life since I've been twenty one years old, do I did I order butt in a bar only to be told that they don't carry it, you know, as opposed to ordering it in a bar and being told they're out, which which happens over the years, you know. I mean that happens. I mean that's even happened at the John Allison house before, when they run out of Budweiser. So that is rare. I think that's been like once <laughs> ever. <laughs> I mentioned that specifically because that's my, you know, that's my my watering hole basically. That's the the local bar that I frequent. But anyway, uh, I've always believed that. Some things happen for no reason. Some things are just random. And that's just how life works. You know, if you look at, like, the animal kingdom, you know, I mean, a lot of it is just random. And uh, I think uh, if you look at the broader universe... That's true too and I you know I could go off on a another tangent here and talk about my thoughts about whether human beings are the only intel well that 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 the only intelligent life in in the universe exists on earth and I I, I don't believe that's the case and I, I do think that the reason that we have not been contacted by extraterrestrial beings, to my knowledge, <laughs> definitively speaking, um, I believe that that is simply a result of the size of the universe you know i think the universe is so it's so large that humans can't really conceive of it you know it's bigger than we can process because we just have nothing to compare to i mean you can you can you know you can say a word like infinite you know people people use terms like infinite and, like, Google, not not, not the search engine, but uh, the numerical amount. But you, you can't really conceive of something that large, you know? I mean, a, a Google of something, like, you would never see anything even close to that in real life. You know, how would you? How could you? You know, um, I think I read somewhere there are not even a Google of atoms on the Earth. You know, if you took all the atoms of the Earth, it the Earth itself, everything on it, everything in it, it would still come out to less than a Google. I may be wrong about that, but I... I I feel like I read that somewhere. (laughs) So, yeah, it's bigger than people can conceive of. And uh, the universe is is the same way. I mean, you can think about interstellar distances, but your conception of it is not going to be anywhere close to the reality of it. You know, the reality of it is larger than we can conceive of. I mean, it's just that simple. And so the idea of interstellar travel is really inconceivable. And it's interesting to note that I read in well. I read in an article a couple days ago that um, one of the Voyager probes is outside of the solar system. It's currently traveling through interstellar space, and um. It's traveling in interstellar space and uh, it's taken 40 years to get there, (laughs) you know. So (laughs) you would – it's basically uh, based on our current level of technology going to, you know, a habitable Earth-like planet in another solar system is impossible. Because it would take longer than a human lifetime to get there. And, uh, you know, to put that into perspective, you could, um, you could, uh, you know, send out, uh, um, What what am I trying to say here? You could send out, like, a a, a group of um, people (laughs) to go to another galaxy or whatever, and they're, like, it, it would take multiple generations to get there. So, like, nobody, no living person would be able to stand on both planets. Think about that for a minute. That's that's a mind blower right there, to me anyway. <clears throat> so, yeah, we started off talking about football here in this episode and wound up talking about interstellar travel. See, this, this is what I love about doing this podcast is that there is zero planning involved. I, I just... Start recording and talk, and whatever comes out, comes out. It's like stream of consciousness. And I thank you for joining me once again. This has been just a podcast. My name is Just Bob. Have a good one. I'll see you in the morning.